When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey, welcome to Beyond the Scenes. This is the Daily Show podcast that goes a little deeper into segments and topics that aired originally on the show. Like, it, think of it like this. If the Daily Show is the main single that made you buy the album, right? Made you listen to the album. Then Beyond the Scenes, that's that remix track you get around like track 11. Kind of like the rock version of All About the Benjamins. You know, you start hearing things in a new way. That's what this podcast is. Today, we're talking about a topic that's been in the news a lot, especially in the last year athletes and their mental health. Here's a few conversations that have come up on the show with Jeremy Lin, Ali Reisman, and Carmelo Anthony. Roll the clips. That's why I'm passionate about mental health. I struggled so much with pregame anxiety. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. You know, and this was when I was just trying to make it and just trying to, you know, uh, survive. And then I play well. And then when Sandy happens, I'm literally the most popular person on the planet. And I'm struggling with the same anxiety. I can't eat. I can't. And I'm realizing like, man, mental health and and the the anxiety that I struggled with was something that came before I had the success, after I had the success and everything in between. If I don't learn how to properly address it. The biggest thing in my healing is recognizing I need to have self-compassion and be nice to myself and coming from the sport of gymnastics where it's all about trying to be perfect, that's hard for me to do and to be kind to myself. And, um, you know, even when I do interviews, I watch them back and I'm hard on myself if I feel like I didn't say the right thing, because I know that so many survivors don't have the platform that I have. And I take that very seriously. So the biggest thing for me has been being nice to myself and treating myself the way that I would treat a loved one or someone that I care about, but it's definitely something that I work on and it's a struggle sometimes. I'm in a competitive sport anyway, as it is. So I don't want to be competitive in every aspect of my life. I want to come home. I want to relax. I want to turn the TV on, listen to music, drink some wine. And I don't want to be competitive all day, every day. And that's what it does to you, man. It just makes you competitive because when you feel like your back is against the wall and people always doubting you and, you know, you're not going to do this. Oh, he's back. Like you said, he's back. Oh, he's not back. He need to go. He need to come back. Or what is he doing? It's like, where's Waldo? And that's not something I, I, I don't want to live my life like that. So today to talk a little bit further, to go beyond on this topic, I'm joined by two experts in the field. My first guest, she's a Fulbright scholar and an exercise psychology professor at Temple University. Her work focuses on racial and gender equity in sports, Dr. Leisha Carter. Dr. Carter, welcome to Beyond the Scenes. Thank you for having me. 
And our second guest joining us is an Olympian, a U.S. track and field runner, Ajay Wilson. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Let's start with this. Um, and this is for both of you all. You know, with regards to everything that's been happening in the past year with athletes and their mental health and some taking breaks and walking away from their sports, more and more athletes are being open about their mental health. What conversations are athletes having and what do you think has brought us to this point thus far? Well, I can talk about the conversations uh, my friends, teammates, and just peers are having on the circuit running. Um, you know, at the forefront is how we're being viewed in the media, how we're interacting on social media, and also just like the financial undertone sometimes of sport. You know, we love what we do, but the reality too is that it's how we earn our living. So I think, you know, right now, um, with everything that's been going on the past year, a pandemic, you know, we're all just sharing our experiences and finding that we have a lot of the same commonalities, even if we're not in the same sport. So then Dr. Carter, I throw this, the same question to you. In your professional circles, how long had this conversation been bubbling before it became part of the national? Because I always feel like when something's part of the national dialogue, it was already happening behind closed doors within those internal circles long before that. I agree that, you know, conversations around athlete well-being and mental health have been being had, you know, long before it became this mainstream larger conversation in our national and international discourse. I think one aspect of why um, we see it so much now at the forefront is because of, you know, quite frankly, the pandemic as well as the racial reckoning um, that we as a nation have gone through. And so I think that there's a very real experience that athletes um, are sharing about how they have experienced both the Black Lives Matter movement, just that um, very real visibility and seeing the intersectionality of particularly our Black athletes and our athletes of color. Um, and then also the ways in which the pandemic has impacted um, athletes, their performance and their overall well-being. And so I think both of these um, situations have created a perfect storm, for lack of a better phrase, um, of individuals within the sporting community to say, you know what, you know, we are more than athletes, we're human, and we're just as much impacted by what's happening in our society than anyone else. Ajay, when people assume that sports is just this purely physical thing, right? Like we just assume the athlete's job, let's just go with track. Okay. You must run track and then you must eat right. And then you must get your proper rest. But there's so much more of a major mental component. Can you speak to some of the specific challenges athletes face when we talk about their mental health? Yeah. I always joke when people ask, how is it to be a professional athlete? And I'm like, okay, three hours of the day, three to four hours, um, I work out. And then the rest of the day, it's just me. It's just Ajay. I'm thinking about how training went. I'm thinking about, you know, my personal life, family, other obligations that I have to do. So it's just like all encompassing. And while most people, you know, they have a nine to five, they can clock into work. And when they leave, you know, they leave the job at the office. Some people, you know, work beyond the hours, but you know, because our job is our body, it's 24 seven, it's all encompassing. And so everything you do is a constant reminder of when you have to be back on that track, when you have to perform and the demands that come with that. Then there's also the back end of competition, um, of dealing with the highs and, and the lows that come with, with it. Um, 
I'll definitely say like since Tokyo, I've had too many, a handful of conversations with friends on just how difficult it is sometimes to process like um, the idea that I've been working at something so for so long and it hasn't happened and not feeling like I've just wasted my time or just finding value in in your life because this is what you've been doing for you know the past nine, 10 years. Where does the media and public criticism fall in that spectrum of things to overcome as well? Because, you know, I am a Twitter athlete, which means it's <laughs> my job to get on Twitter and judge you for being good or bad at something that I've never, ever attempted. And we all know that that's what Twitter is all about. <laughs> uh, does that add anything or does that not or does or is that not bother most athletes performing at your level? I think a lot of athletes want to lean into, you know, I don't care about that stuff or, you know, I tune out the noise, but the the reality is because we're also engrossed into social media and a lot of sponsorships now or you have to have a strong presence. Like you see those things and often you see feedback about your performance. You see feedback about your value as an athlete before you've kind of had time to process yourself. Um, there's been plenty of events that I've gone to and you know, I'm thinking ahead, like, okay, I run this race. What questions are going are they going to ask me? How am I going to navigate this? If it goes bad, like, how am I going to handle, you know, just facing the noise? And sometimes it's just like, um, it can be overwhelming. And I think the only solution is kind of just to find where you can fit in between and just stay in tune with, with yourself so you know when you need to kind of back off and when to, you know, respond how you need to. I, I didn't realize it at the time, what a bad friend I was being to someone in Los Angeles. This was years ago. I didn't know, like, I like you know, somebody's training. You know, I'm training for the Olympics, eh, mm-hmm. whatever. And we were all at some karaoke or something. I go, hey, I'm going to get a drink. Y'all want a drink? She goes, well, I'll just have half a cranberry juice. And we must have clowned her <laughs> for an hour for, oh, you're getting crazy with a little cranberry juice. But just... We're just, I just did not understand that literally something as simple as one drink could take three one hundred thousandth gajillionths of a second off of the time or leave you sluggish or like the way in which you have to regiment your body. How much does that, uh, Dr. Carter, how much does that spill over into, you know, eating disorders? Or let's talk also about the difference between mental health and mental illness as well. Mm-hmm. Like Ajay shared, there's a 24-7 experience um, that comes before that, before she walks onto the track. And that includes mental preparation, nutritional health, physical health, mental and spiritual health, right? And so when we think about mental health as well as mental illness, there's two sides of the spectrum here, right? So when we think of mental illness, we are really talking about individuals who are experiencing um some form of issue that is in some way, shape or form is impairing their life, right? Um, And because of that impairment, based on, you know, the severity of it, um, then that person could be diagnosed with a clinical mental disorder in which they could, you know, they they might be getting treatment for. Mental illness is when we're really talking about disorders. Mental health is really, we're talking about someone who, you know, more days than not feels stable, but wants to engage in things that that, um, further improve their overall well-being. How do we get through to people who refuse or just don't always possess the bandwidth to understand the nuance of everything that you've just said? Like, 
how do we get people to understand that? Like if you are dealing with an impairment, as you say, how do we convey that to our family? Because, you know, Michael Che had a, he just did a stand up special. He said something that was so on point to me about mental health and just how a lot of black families will just throw something away. Oh, ain't nothing wrong with that boy. Oh boy, you just need Jesus. Oh, you, ain't nothing, you just need to start eating again. Like it's such an afterthought in our community. If we're just going to talk, but I'm not talking about people of color. I'm talking about black folk. Mm-hmm. It's such an afterthought. How how do we how are we able? What are things that we can do, even if we're not dealing with an issue ourselves, to slowly bring more people that have been ignorant to this into the light? Yeah, I think two things first. One is education and in, and educating ourselves and the public radically on what is mental illness, what is mental health, right? But with that education gets to your second question, particularly within the black community, we really need advocates in action based off of being educated and raising your awareness of what mental health is and also what therapy is and um, all the things. We really need people within our own community to just speak out and be allies for individuals who are experiencing some form of mental illness or struggle with their mental health and to talk about why it's important to one for families and friends to be supportive of this individual right or of people right as well as the ways in which they can do so so just like with any other form of advocacy or allyship we need people within our own community to show up and get into the fight around being supportive of people who have various different mental health struggles, as well as might be struggling with a mental illness. We just need to stand up and be allies. How do athletes then, because you, we know the hate is coming. You know that journalists are ignorant and they're going to ask obvious questions. You lost. How do you feel right now? Do you feel, when do you think, how do you think I feel, dummy? And you're going to deal with social media as well and the criticism that comes from that. But what are some tools, uh, Doc, that that athletes can use? Because I feel like it's it's two sides to a coin now, because now social media is also the gift that helps to make you marketable. Uh, Being accessible to some degree is profitable. Also, everybody talks about brand building. Well, part of building your brand is presenting yourself to people, which means that you have to have some level of social exposure for the sake of growing this career that you've dedicated your entire being to up until this point. So what are some things that athletes can do to try and kind of, you know, navigate around that a little? Well, first, I'm a huge advocate for having a great therapist um, and a mental health clinician who could really help you process your experiences, both within that athletic realm and outside. I think having someone who is trained that for you to be able to speak to about what you're experiencing, how perhaps things like social media um, may be a trigger for you emotionally or psychologically, um, as well as um, something that Ajay um, shared is that it, it might inadvertently uh, create a space where you're processing your experiences and thinking about your experiences in a way that's not best for you. I also think that boundaries are very important. I think boundaries and self-care. And I think for any person as well as athletes, they should begin to think about, you know, how often do they want to engage in social media? 
in order to give them what I like to call some off time from their sport. So on time is when you're thinking about your sport, you're practicing your sport, you're doing everything that relates to your sport and your sport profession. And off time is you're not thinking about your sport at all. You're not thinking about anything that relates to your performance. You're doing something completely different. You're playing video games or something like that. And I think every athlete needs to give themselves off time every day in order to just allow that swelling to go down and to allow them that free space to be able to exist outside of that athletic identity and outside of you know what they hope for their performance. So the, to that to that self-care note then, Ajay, Naomi Osaka decides just one day out the blue, didn't warn nobody, like, you know what? I don't feel like talking to the media today. I think I'm going to just go back to the hotel. I'll holler. Can you talk a little bit as an athlete about the nature of the post-race interview? Is it as bad and as heinous as it seems? Because I'll be honest, just watching at home, <laughs> it's, it, the press conference is very unnecessary. Y'all can just tweet what you feel and just like, <laughs> just, just tweet, I lost, congrats to the winner. I then I'll holler. <laughs> yeah, I think as both, both an athlete and also just um, as a spectator, a lot of the times, um, I do enjoy, you know, post-race or post-competition interviews where you get to see more character or, you know, um, personality of, you know, people who are being interviewed. Um, personally, not my favorite thing. <laughs> I'm definitely... Um, I feel like because the pressure that comes with saying the right thing, people running with it and it just, just convoluting, just like my time in sport. I started like pretty young, right after high school at 18. So right in those kind of young years, having that type of pressure and that type of just like feedback, um, as simple as like, oh, like, why is she looking at the camera like that? Like she looks disinterested, just weird, random opinions. Um, I just realized affected me. So for me, it's just like, you guys get the pretty much the cookie cutter answer every time. I'm going to I'm gonna tell you what you want to hear, but it's not going to be in depth. And I think that's my way of kind of like Dr. Lee just said of having boundaries of um, if I let you in too much, you might lose a bit of sense of who you're talking to and what we're doing here. So I just try to keep a balance of, you know, sharing enough so that people who care about the sport and fans have an inside view of like how things went. But also just respecting and protecting my space and my peace of mind. And, you know, after a race, I'm already tired. I also shouldn't now be like <laughs> mentally drained and like agitated. Yeah. Y'all need to leave me alone. I got to go enjoy my half a glass of cranberry juice real quick. <laughs> yes. Uh, after the break, um, I want to explore a little bit more into how this topic expands out into the general public ignorance around mental health and how race and gender factor into this. Because I also kind of feel like Osaka and Simone Biles they're taking a break was seen as something totally different from even the men that were still dealing with ignorance to mental health, but not nearly as much of an issue when it came to race and gender. This is Beyond the Scenes. We'll be right back. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. 
To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Dr. Carter, a lot of your work focuses on the intersection of race and gender in sports. And to me, it seems like women of color are taking charge and leading by example by advocating for their mental health. Why do you think that is? Why do you think is the women of color? Why is it the black women that's always got to take the first step in the beachhead of fighting things like this? Well, first and first and foremost, shout out to black women. Um, second, um, you know, I mean, just from an intersectional perspective, you know, when we can liberate black women and indigenous women, we liberate everyone. Right. And so just the demonstration of black women, um, Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka, having boundaries and just being firm with their boundaries the ways in which that has opened the floodgates for everyone is magical. And it's just another demonstration of when we can support um, individuals who are dual, triple minorities, right? And advocating for what they need, it really helps everybody. So I just want to state that, but I think that for, you know, I can't speak for Simone Biles or for Naomi Osaka, but I, 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 I think that they didn't go into their personal advocacy trying to be models for everyone else or trying to change the culture for everyone else. It was a matter of what do I need right now for me? How am I impacted? And from a long-term perspective, how is what's happening to me right now um, going to impact me a month two years or five years, right? And so it really seems like there's a deep level of awareness from both women that this isn't just about the here and now. This isn't just about, okay, the Olympics right now or a tennis tournament right now. It's about 10 years from now, do I wanna be someone that is still grappling with the ways in which intersectional systems of discrimination have been violent and traumatic towards me, right? And so it's like, look, I need to actually address this now because I want to be strong, healthy, present and powerful 10 years from now. And because it's women of color, everyone is surprised because we do not believe, support or amplify women of color caring for themselves. If anything, their body, their mind, their labor is supposed to be for others. So the fact they said, no, I really do need to take a step back for me. It's like, whoa. That's not what society has <laughs> written for you, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's why it comes as such a surprise and has been so big in the media, I think. One thing I was talking to my friend about right before I came on, just the shift that it's it seemed like it's been for athletes changing from spokesperson to like influencer. And you think of a spokesperson, they have to have this like squeaky clean image and they have to present a certain way. Versus, you know, now companies want someone who can influence people who can sell a product without actually selling a product. So I think that shift has like allowed for people to, you know, tell more of their story because it's like you don't want to just hear about what I'm selling. You want to hear about me and part of my story is like my mental health. It's about my daily struggles. And it's kind of I feel like changed how people share, how athletes share and how much they share to the public. So it's made athletes a little more open about their true selves, which could help foster some level of understanding from the public. For sure. And, and you know, you're not going to 
like get in trouble for it. I think in today's climate. Yeah, you ain't um, gonna lose your Gatorade money. Yeah, because you're not gonna say Shh, like you're not depressed. <laughs> like they're not gonna come at you that way. Um, so it's a little bit more freedom, you know, from that from that side to to tell more and share more and hopefully give people a better idea of what it's like. Yeah, I mean, the irony of it is that a lot of the talk around Naomi Osaka as of late in the last year has been less about tennis and more about what she was a catalyst for. And Mm -hmm. that in and of itself is a good thing. And I'm willing to bet money she didn't lose no endorsement money. Not a a dollar. (laughs) From not going to no press conference. Mm -hmm. Even when you look at like the WNBA, which is 80% Black women, and the stands that they've taken on a lot of race and equity issues as well. Like when that was first starting to happen a couple of years ago, they're like, wait a minute, why are all these women wearing the same t-shirt? Mm-hmm. Who, what, huh? <laughs> can they do that? Like, yeah, we can do it and we're gonna do it. Mm-hmm. I think it's also, you know, in sport, when you kind of reach like the top 1% in your event, it's it comes with like, you know, achievement that you sometimes feel like, okay, I'm, you know, financially set, like I'm performing at my best. I'm at the top and I'm still not impervious to all of these things that are happening around me. I'm still being, you know, looked at differently because of my skin color. I'm still being, I'm still trying to be silenced. And it's like, no matter how high I climb, no matter how high I achieve, like that will never protect me. So I've read a quote, like during the pandemic, your silence will not protect you. And I think that speaks also to like, why they're using their voices 10, 20 years from now, um, I won't nearly have as much power or people won't really care as much about what I have to say. So of course I'm going to say it now because this is my life and this is something that I have to advocate for. And I know for me personally, it's like um, I'm in a position where I have a voice. I know so many people out there are just like me. Um, I'm super into, you know, being connected and to my community back home. So seeing so many people, that are me and the only difference is that they don't have the platform. Um, like it's it's empowering to make sure my voice is heard and our experiences are, are understood and heard. Mm-hmm. Aj, when would you say, or is there a time where you can, cause it's, I don't know, it's kind of like racism. It's like, mm-hmm. this is gonna be a weird question. It's gonna feel like, tell me the first time you felt racist. <laughs> cause you can't always tell, but when did you first realize as a black woman, what the expectations were of you within your sport like was there a coach and hey coach can i be short to too short no shut up do what i say <laughs> like was there ever when did you first realize that there were certain expectations that society places on athlete on black women um in sports well i'd say like the first instance that i had was which happens a lot in track and field was just basically like the event that i chose so you think you know, black athletes, you think 100, 200 sprinting. So when I first started, I did the four by 100 and I did the 400. And, you know, it took a coach, my first coach, Rob Joyner and um, Keith Davis, you know, pushing me to say, hey, like go run a few laps. And I ran a bunch. So I shifted to the distance events. But going into events and different races, I'd always hear people on the sidelines of like, Oh, does she know what event this is? Does she know how many laps she has to do? Of just the expectation is as a black woman, I'm not expected to, you know, do distance. I'm not expected to do middle distance. And it's funny because when you go to the higher level internationally, the 5K, 10K, 1500, those are the people that are dominating. People from the Kenya, Ethiopia, Africa, people who look just like me. 
Yeah. Exactly. So it's just funny that in America, you know, the v- viewpoint is different. And so I've had races where I'm running. It's like, oh, she's about to get tired. This isn't even her race. And, you know, when I hear things like that, it's like, okay, now I'll have to show you like that. This is not how it's going to go. <laughs> but even in a way, isn't that in and of itself also racist in the sense that I have to win in order for them to even accept that I'm decent? Yeah, and that's something that I've had to win by ten lengths or something. Wow! Over over the years of, you know, running for me, I've always just wanted to be pure. I love it. I love what I do. And you know, when I'm out there, I just want to compete. And I remember being in high school, senior year. I'm doing the mile, and I look to my left and I look to my right, and I'm the only black girl on the line. And um, I say to myself, like, okay, I, I have to do well. I have to do well because you know I have to represent for us. And over the years, I've just realized that like. That's a big burden to kind of carry, and it kind of taints the the. I feel like the innocence of the sport. So it's it's become less of oh, I need to prove someone wrong. I need to prove that I belong here, and it's like I just need to do what I love, and that other stuff will fall in place, and you know it'll speak for itself. Doctor Carter, why are women just expected to say yes to everything? Like because if you would have had, she could have easily had a different coach. Ajay could have had a different coach and she could go, hey, coach, I want to run distance. And he could go, nah, you're a sprinter and I need my black women sprinting. And then she's forced to choose between that. And I would imagine there are a lot of people, there are a lot of women that are in situations where they're expected to just say yes without even challenging something and creating waves in the water. Why do you think that is? I think that's there's a, a few reasons to that. I do want to touch on um, what Ajay shared and what you shared, Roy, about just the idea of um, uh, black women being uh, being more effective um, in the shorter distances, in the 100, the 200, the jumps, and less in the longer distances within the U.S. Um, I think what the, the first thing that comes up to me is just microaggressions, micro and macroaggressions, right? And so these are very unintentional, you know, verbal or physical um, or even policy related and environmental slights that indicate that someone doesn't belong or that someone is less than within the context that they're experiencing these microaggressions. And one of the consequences of that is feeling like, you know, othered. I don't belong here. I'm not supposed to be here. And those that do are in here um, or part of the 800 meter environment or the 1600 meters um, are a certain type of prototype. And that prototype is thin white women, right? And I'm not that prototype. So I should look at the, I should actually direct my efforts and my interest to where I would be more prototypic being the shorter distances. So that's the first thing that comes up for me with that. And so why are women, particularly women of color, um, expected to say yes? And I'm going to talk about this in the context of black women, because I think that it's really important for us to, you know, recognize the long-term impact of slavery um, on our social psyche and on the ways in which the technology of racism exists um, today, as well as sexism exists. And when we look at the ways in which Black women were situated and positioned during slavery and post-slavery, it was as that caregiver, you know, that mammy mentality that this Black woman should be caring for everyone and be happy that she's caring for her family, the, the families of white slave owners and their children. 
and that she's a happy slave. She's a, a happy mammy. And when we see the more contemporary um, narratives around that, it's the same, right? It's this black woman should be happy that she's here. She should be happy I'm asking her to do for me. Um, and by her not being happy or content inside of this, it's just not prototypic. It's like, why would you this is what black women are designed to be. They're designed to be the caretakers, the laborers, and those who support um, the white majority and those who are more adjacent to the white majority. Um, so there is that a friction that's happening um, when that happens, when the, a, a black woman or a woman of color says no. She's actually agitating this um, these intersectional stereotypes around what mm-hmm. women of color are supposed to do and supposed to be and for who. And then I think the added like double whammy on top of that is just being an athlete whether you're a male or a female we look at athletes and we're like I wish I was in that position whatever you're going through you should just be lucky that you're there oh they're paying you what oh you should just be grateful that you know this is the position that you're in and while that's very much true it's it's still very nuanced and like the the challenges and struggles that come with it um they affect that experience and the value of it and I think sometimes that's lost just you know from people on the outside looking in I completely agree. Like this element of classism that resides within the sports system is very real, right? And so it's like your body belongs to someone else. It belongs to entertainment. It belongs to the spectator. And when you begin to say it doesn't, um, then that, again, agitates what is the larger discourse around athletes and their responsibilities to their sport and entertainment in general, yeah, we ain't even gotten to shut up and dribble yet. That's a whole nother episode. <laughs> like, what you got opinions to? What you trying to take care of yourself? What you trying to care for the world? Mm-hmm. Oh, please. So what about what about the male athletes, Dr. Carter? They're starting to be a little bit more vocal as well. Like say you had uh, Calvin Ridley uh, from the Atlanta Falcons who took a little break to step away. Um, my man, Kerry Price in the NHL has been open about uh, his issues with substance abuse. Is there a different approach between genders when it comes to addressing this issue publicly? Like, is it, do you see the issue handled a little differently or perceived differently when it's a male athlete uh, versus a woman? I think in general, when male athletes uh, talk about their mental health needs and they advocate for their mental health, it's, it's, um, it's more well-received. Um, then when we compare it to, um, particularly like our Naomi Osaka's and Simone Biles. Um, but I think that there's a really, um, interesting nuance there because, you know, part of the mental health conversation and some myths around mental health, um, and mental wellness is that if you are focused on your mental health, then somehow you're not strong, you're not resilient. Right. And then when we put that into the larger, um, kind of uh, concepts around how masculinity is constructed and how men are socialized to, particularly cisgender men, are socialized to appear and perform their manhood, right? Um, I think that leaning into, for a man to lean into his mental health needs or to share a mental illness and uh, the step that he's taking to care for himself, then people begin to say, is he less than a man? Is this how manhood is supposed to be performed, right? And that he's less strong and less resilient as a man, exactly, for for doing the things that he needs, right? And so we really need to, one, 
humanize athletes and humanize people in general, right? And really begin to also understand how controlling the stereotypes around masculinity are, how much they box our, our young boys, our young men into very specific ways of being instead of allowing that box not to exist and to experience their manhood um, and masculinity in the way that they see fit, in the way in which it's you know constructed for them. After the break, then I want to talk with you about what people like me could do better. You know, what does the public get wrong? And if there's anything on the legislative side or the rulemaking side, Ajay, I would love to kind of, you know, as they say, pick your brain about that. We'll do that on the other side of the break. This is Beyond the Scenes. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Dr. Carter, what is it that you think the public gets wrong about mental health? Well, I would say the first is that um, someone speaking about or doing things that will support their mental health and personal resilience in some way, um, or if someone is talking about or is diagnosed with a mental illness, somehow that this is, you know, they're othered in some way, right? Rather than allowing that to be part of this person's fully multidimensional experience, right? We all have things that we struggle with and experience, and we and to remove or to put someone in a particular box doesn't help them at all. So I think some of the things that the public gets wrong is just these general myths around what mental health is, uh, what mental illness is, what it means to actually engage in strategies that are helpful to your mental health and mental well-being, um, and that doing so does not make you less lesser than or less than a person. It doesn't make you weak. It doesn't make you soft. It really is the reverse. It, it's for someone to um, be very aware of what they need emotionally, psychologically, to me, um, speaks to a, a, a deep level of strength, resilience, right, and fortitude. I also think that the public, I don't know if it's getting it wrong or how they could get it right, is just to educate themselves on what mental health is, what mental illness is, how can we as spectators and lovers of sport be supportive of our athletes rather than um, be critical of them when they begin to share openly what they need and the ways in which they've been impacted, not only by their sport, but society in general. Um, so yeah, I would say, you know, dispelling these myths as well as really seeing yourselves as advocates for education around mental health in order to be more supportive. Ajay, what are the choices that we can make as people to focus more on the survivorship of the athlete and not necessarily the harm that has been done to them by the world around them? Yeah, I think it it all comes back to empathy and not being able to, you know, maybe actually experience or know what someone life someone's life is like but to be compassionate about how they need to 
process, how they need to experience it. And I think there's a, a big separation sometimes with just like the average person and the professional athlete, but outside of being, you know, exceptional at what they do, we're human. We're everyday people. We have our struggles just like, you know, the average person. And I think, you know, if that's kind of tapped into more instead of, you know, placing people on pedestals and thinking that, you know, they're impervious to everything else that's going on in the world, um, may be helpful in just helping people realize that and then just being more compassionate about how they interact with them. It's one thing for the public to understand, but you know, Dr. Carter, how can we also create these systems that are in place so that they aren't as stressful? Like if we go back to Ajay in middle school track and the coach who wanted to pressure her to do one thing based on the racial, the general racial makeup in that particular discipline of track and field, how much does inclusivity and accessibility play a role in all of this? I mean, huge, but the practice of like, how do, how do we actually articulate these ideas of inclusion and accessibility from the, the highest echelons of sport to, you know, youth sport, right? Like that's what, what does, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Like what does that actually look like? I think first is, is something my dad used to always say to me, never settle. We can't settle for what diversity is we can't settle for okay you know we've we've had some coaches do some training um around inclusion so we feel like we could check that box we really have to set a high aspirational standard of what we really hope a great sporting environment looks like which includes our coaches understanding um, how to be responsive when it comes to mental health needs, as well as other needs, you know, being responsive and knowing, you know, about, you know, issues around race and sexism um, uh, as well. And so what are we doing with our coaches in order to help them first raise their awareness, as well as then build the skill set in order to create more inclusive um, belonging environments amongst their team? And then what are we doing with athletic departments um, and athletic organizations to understand their unique workplace and cultural environments and how they can be everyday practitioners of equity and inclusion and what that looks like, the conversations that need to be had um, in that in that particular realm. A professor from Dreskel University, um, Kenneth Hardy, always talks about will and skill that when it comes to inclusion, we have to consider both. That you can have somebody that has the skills to articulate these things into their everyday culture and environment, but they don't have the will. They don't, they're not motivated to. But conversely, you can have people who have that will and not the skill. And so I think that we need to, within sport, build both will and skill amongst every dimension. From that peewee coach, um, that youth coach, to you know, college sport, to professional sport, to to family and friends being supportive. And I think more importantly also is fans. You know, how are we educating fans? What are we doing with our fanship um, in order for them to understand that part of creating an inclusive environment 100% needs them. It needs them to show up and have that will for the athletes they love. You know, they want to see their athletes play, but don't you want them to be healthy? Don't you want them to feel good about what they do, you know? Um, yeah. Ajay, I wish I'd asked you this question earlier, but when we talk about young black women athletes that are coming up, like there were, there were a group of young women that, you know, they were swimmers and 
the whatever the regulating body wouldn't allow them to wear the swim cap that fits specific black hair because I guess it made them more aerodynamic in the water or something stupid. What can parents do and what or what did your parents do to make sure that no matter what's happening outside the house with these types of inequities, that what, what could parents do or what did your parents do to help keep that from permeating into you? My parents really just did a great job of protecting me and also just pouring back into me. Um, there are a lot of girls that like I came up with that, you know, didn't take the same path or weren't able to make it to the next level. And I always credit my success to my support. Um, my parents knew what was coming. They they warned me and they equipped me with the tools that I needed to like prepare and, and embrace. Of course, when you transition to like a new lifestyle, which is like professional that they didn't know much about. They talked to other people, you know, they looked for other resources and people who'd been through similar experiences to kind of equip me as best that I can. And I feel like as, as parents, especially to, you know, younger kids coming up in sport, you know, the most that you can do is to, to stay in tune, stay in touch, check in with your kids, see, you know, what things that they notice, because, you know, even though you're younger, you pick up on things, you, you feel, you know, the, the world around you. And just making sure that you're doing everything you can to to support them and finding resources and just, you know, not leaving any stone unturned. Hey, Roy, I just got to say something about that comment that you um, made about the, the swimming, the swimming cap. For the governing body of swimming to say that this swimming cap, you know, does not fit you know, standard swim cap regulations really speaks to the lack of diversity in the governing body, in the senior leadership um, within swimming and within this governing body. Without that diversity, and then without those difficult conversations about how the lack of diversity doesn't exist in senior leadership, all the way through um, our, our swimmers and in just youth sport, the pipeline into swimming, then we have people not understanding what people need, right? And in this context, mm. black women swimmers. So because there's not those difficult conversations around um, diversity and inclusion within the swimming culture, just in equipment, right? Um, just the rules, yeah. Just the rules, right? Then we have athletes who aren't seen for who they are and athletes who don't get what they need. And then a result of that is that now they have to slowly start you know, moving over to that prototype. So do, do I need to straighten my hair? Do I need to, you know, what do I need to put in my hair in order for it to fit into the regulated cap, right? Now or that's cut where your we, hair. Exactly. And that's how yeah. we get into discrimination, right? Like that's how that operates. Okay, so then you walked me right into the question I was about to ask Ajay, and I'll start with you first then instead. What are some of the systems and policies that leagues and governing bodies could start putting in place to protect athletes. It seems like from if if what you're saying is real, it seems like the first issue is staffing. <laughs> it seems like before we decide on what the rules are, we need to decide who's going to be making the rules. Period. Full stop. Like you, it could end right there. Honestly, there has to be a very transparent and what I like to call radically honest conversation and exploration of, yeah, who's at the top, who's in the middle, and who's at the bottom? Who is left out of the current policies and decisions that are made, right? Like if we're going to be um, advocates for equity and advocates for inclusion, we need to constantly ask ourselves, and the people who are making decisions need to ask themselves, who are we leaving out in this policy? Does this policy marginalize anyone? 
And I think also we get stuck in, well, this is what we've been doing forever. So this is what we're going to continue to do versus saying, you know what? Let's just be different. You know, yeah, this policy was created in early 1900s or something like that, whatever. But it's time to reevaluate our policies and our procedures. And how can we bring athletes into that decision-making process, bring other individuals into this conversation to make our policy and procedures much more intersectional, much more inclusive than what they might have been historically when they were first established? And Ajay, anything to that? Like, I know that there's, I know, I know that if, if we're going to ask what's wrong with you know, a lot of these sports, especially on the women's side, I know we could go down the list. We could talk about pay parity and prioritizing the safety of women. And even with, even with the way contracts are built, like, do you think there's a way through Ajay with, even with the way that athletic contracts are drawn up with regards to the expectations of how much you should be training versus resting and even offering mental health as part of the, I guess, as part of the contract? I definitely think that's that that should be a part of the future. And I know in track and field conversations about changing or giving companies language of, you know, how to better interact with their athletes, like specifically around maternity and maternity leave um, in our sport has, has been huge right now. Um, and I think that's where it starts. You, you can't expect a problem to change if the rules are still the same. Um, and I'll, I'll also say that like having people you know, in power who have been a part of um, sport, who've been in athletics, they always say that those who are closest to the problem are also closest to the solution. Like having their voices heard and having their power and voices mean something in those conversations um, is super important. Even as it transitions to the conversation we were having about um, post-race interviews, you know, media, I think that's a huge missing element of of having people in the room that look like the people who are being interviewed, who look like the people who are in the sport. Um, this past summer, like one of my best friends started mm. her own show called Track Girl Summer, and she has athletes on. She asks them questions, um, but it's 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 a different energy, um, and it's it's different having someone who understands where you've been, what you've gone through. Um, to also ask insightful questions to kind of get more out of the athlete and also just understand the experience better. Um, so definitely representation from every end on the spectrum is, is super important. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation and I cannot thank you ladies enough for adding your level of wise expertise to the world of professional athletics. I will now go and eat two cheeseburgers. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Carter and Ajay Wilson, for taking us beyond the scenes. Listen to The Daily Show Beyond the Scenes on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you're listening. I don't care where you get this podcast. I just care that you listen to it. Why was I so rude just then? I'm sorry. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. 
we went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.